0: Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Acts together, and we come now to chapter 21, verse 1. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of these guys that are walking up the aisles with Bibles, and they'll put one in your hand. It'll be marked right to our passage, and if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you today. Acts chapter 21, verse 1, Spirit of the Lord. Now it came to pass that when we, Paul and his entire team he's traveling with, had departed uh, from them, that is the city of Miletus, meeting with the Ephesian elders, and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Cause, and the following day to Rhodes, and from there to uh, Patara. and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail, and when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were, all, we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais. And greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. And on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed, came to Caesarea, and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those <coughs> excuse me, from that place pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem, and then Paul answered. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so when we, he would not be persuaded, uh, we ceased saying, uh, the will of the Lord be done. Let's pray together now. Lord, thank you for the broad diversity of your word. And we thank you that every portion of it is intended to build something into our understanding of you, uh, the life that you've called us to, our our relationship with you, Lord, and uh, to build upon other things that are within the Scriptures. We pray that you would take these 14 verses off of the written page of this Bible and that you would plant it, Lord, into the living and daily uh, uh, thinking that each of us does as Christians and the living that we do on our pilgrimage here. We ask all of these things in this work of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul is now headed to Jerusalem, and we are just really one verse away from him finally arriving there to conclude his third missionary journey. We remember that he is intending to get there, hopeful to get there in the, for the Jewish feast of Pentecost, to celebrate that in Jerusalem, but also to bring a gift to the Jewish Christians who were uh, facing significant hardship and deprivation in the city of Jerusalem, a gift that Paul, a financial gift that Paul had collected from the various Gentile churches that he had established in the course of his missionary uh, journeys. The, Paul was traveling with uh, Dr. Luke, who is the human author of this uh, divinely inspired book of Acts. He's also uh, traveling with Silas as well as a significant group of men who are coming with him from the various cities that have uh, sent offerings to uh, Jerusalem. And so this is the delegation that he's with. The passage is really kind of a travelogue, uh, but there are some uh, insights and there's some lessons that are found uh, within it. You notice that in at the end in verse uh, 38 of uh, chapter 20, we're told that uh, Paul was at a, accompanied as he left the city of, of Miletus where he had addressed the Ephesian elders. We've talked about that in uh, recent weeks. And this group of Ephesian elders, they accompanied Paul uh, to the ship, also his traveling companions, and Paul then resumes his final journey now to Jerusalem. Uh, it is an expression of love, not to just say, well, all right, Paul taught us, now we'll just cut things off and go on about our business and and he'll go in one direction and we'll go in another direction. But they did accompany him to the ship and it was a expression of their love for him, an expression of their respect for him. Uh, sometimes even as we'll have uh, someone, or you might or I might have someone over to our house for dinner and then uh, they leave. We, we don't stand in the kitchen and uh, we show them, uh, you know, we open the door for them, the front door. We watch them go to the car and uh, drive away. It's an expression of affection. It's an expression of uh, of respect and that, uh, you know, almost that we hate to see them go and so forth. And this is exactly what uh, they were doing Uh, with Paul and his team. You notice in verse 1, Luke writes, and he said, when we had departed from them, the verb uh, there departed, in the original language it really means we were torn apart from them. Again, it shows how much these uh, men that had served with Paul, how much they loved him and they were already beginning to miss him. Uh, They take the journey by ship from Miletus, to Tyre in verses 1 through 6. They stop at an island by the name of Kos, an island that's 40 miles uh, away from the city of Miletus out in the Aegean Sea. It's located right off of the coast of modern-day Turkey, but it is a part of uh, the nation of Greece. And then they go to Rhodes, which is another uh, island some 60 miles south of Kos uh, in the Aegean Sea and on to Patara, Uh, which was a port city on the Mediterranean now. They've moved from the Aegean Sea to uh, the Mediterranean. They go into this port city, which is a part of uh, modern-day Turkey. At this point, uh, the Apostle Paul kind of abandons what we would call, uh, for lack of, uh, you know, a comparative term, uh, ferries that are just these small ships that would just move around the various cities that, were, that lined the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, the distance that they would travel would be about 60 miles uh, or so. And now Paul wants to abandon these small ships and take a straight shot um, Uh, into, all the way into Tyre uh, in the country of Lebanon. He wants to cross the entire Mediterranean. So he catches a seagoing ship there to make that 400-mile journey. And during the voyage, we're told uh, that they passed the island of Cyprus which would have been the only land that they would have seen in a boat like that traveling across the Mediterranean uh, in that age as they made their way uh, uh, through the Mediterranean towards Tyre. And then they landed in the city of Tyre, we're told, where uh, the ship was docked for seven days in order to unload its cargo and probably be reladen with the next uh, bit of cargo that was going to go uh, to the next city that they were going to as they continued the journey. Now, a couple of uh, important things to notice in this is that we do enter into another section of the book of Acts here that is known as the we sections of the book of Acts. And right there in verse 1, it came to pass that when we had departed, and so it means that Luke has rejoined the Apostle Paul and uh, probably Silas, and along with this uh, larger group of men that are uh, traveling with him, they're present with Paul for this part uh, of his journey. Additionally, it's important to realize, I think, and to have it be reminded of it every so often as Christians, that The mention of cities, the mention of dates, the mention of distances, the mention uh, of people and so forth in the Bible. And the Bible is just absolutely jammed full of this kind of information from one end of the Bible uh, to the other. When we read this kind of thing, we're never intended to as Christians to look at it and see that it's just some kind of unnecessary or technical information that we could uh, do just as well without as uh, as with, with having it what it constantly reminds us of is the fact that the Bible is a historical uh, book and it is filled with historical accounts. Sometimes uh, you will run into someone who declares that the Bible is simply the product of, uh, you know, the writings of men and that it's uh, completely filled with fanciful myths and and folklore. And when I hear someone assess the Bible in that kind of a way, I realize this is a person who has never studied the Bible and probably never read the Bible with any kind of an open mind. Because when you read the Bible, and even in a section like this, it reads nothing like a fable. It reads nothing like a myth. It reads exactly uh, as history uh, reads. And it does so because it is history. Uh, spiritual history concerning the salvation of mankind. Now notice at the latter end of verse 3 into verse 6 that while they were in Tyre in the country of Lebanon, and this is very significant to understand, in verse 4 they made a determined effort to find Christians there within the city of Tyre. They're going to be there seven days They want to hang around with some Christians and kind of redeem the time and have fellowship. And we're told that they found them and they stayed with them for that week. And you can imagine what an encouragement that would have been. It certainly would be to anyone serving the Lord today, but how much an encouragement it would have been to Paul uh, and uh, to others that were traveling with him They had absolutely no part, at least no positive part, in the establishing uh, of this church in uh, Tyre, and yet it had happened. And the establishment of a Christian presence in a church within uh, the city of of Tyre probably happened as a result of the persecution that arose uh, by the Jewish religious leaders upon the martyrdom of Stephen uh, as it's uh, recorded earlier in uh, Acts chapter 8. And the religious establishment was emboldened at their uh, killing of uh, Stephen, and then they began to persecute all of the Christians within the city of Jerusalem. The persecution was so fierce that it drove the Christians for their lives into all of the surrounding area of Samaria, and Judea and then they took the witness of Christ with them there. Probably some went to uh, Tyre here or, and, and uh, ultimately uh, the gospel took root and we found Christians here. Paul played an indirect uh, means of the establishment perhaps of the church in Tyre and that he led the persecution against the Christians uh, in Jerusalem, driving them uh, out, but one of the things this mention of this church, where we, you know, we know nothing about its establishment, this is the Holy Spirit's way of letting us know that people were getting saved everywhere, that the gospel was changing lives everywhere in the known world at that time, and. Uh, and, and the, uh, the main focus of the book of Acts has to do with the ministry of the apostles, but it isn't the sole record of what was going on uh, in the early church. So many things were happening, and so many people were being saved. And these people in Tyre, they were miracles of God. I mean, they'd heard the gospel, their lives had been transformed, and here they are born again, a miracle of the Holy Spirit and uh, a church had been established. I think it's good to stop and think every once in a while as Christians about the miracle that we are of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we can think, well, it was just us kind of rationalizing related to the gospel and here is our need as the Bible uh, describes it and so forth and here is God's offer and it's completely uh, logical and rational and His provision is an exact need match for our need and so forth. And there's certainly a part of all of that related to our salvation but there's just the supernatural of the Holy Spirit giving us that revelation and then us surrendering and being born again by the Holy Spirit. You are a miracle this morning as a Christian. Whatever the rest of the world thinks about you or doesn't think about you, uh, you are remarkable. And it was beautiful for Paul to run into uh, these saints there uh, in Tyre. During Paul's stay, and very important to look at it with your own eyes in verse 4, as he stayed with these Christians there... um, it was, they declared to uh, uh, him that it was revealed to us that, uh, that we're told here in verse 4 that they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And we'll, we'll uh, take a little further note of that in a minute or two. At the end of the week, verses 5 and 6, the disciples then, uh, their entire, they accompanied Paul once again, a show of love and respect toward him and uh, they uh, showed them to the city limits, they prayed together, and then Paul and his group uh, departed to continue their journey. And then the 24 miles by sea, verse 7 to Ptolemaeus, that's known as Aco, and it is, just, uh, it is in uh, Israel proper today and just uh, a little bit north of Haifa. And so that's where they traveled next. They enjoyed fellowship with other Christians there for a single day, and then on to Caesarea, verses 8 through 14. And Caesarea was and is a coastal town uh, in, is in the city of, of Israel. It was at the time, Paul's time, it was the center for the Roman government in Israel. The, it was a little bit of Rome away from Rome. When the Roman governors and the Roman soldiers and legionnaires and so forth, they didn't want to hang out in Jerusalem. I mean, that's just like a religious place. These are soldiers. And so what Rome would do is they'd set up these kind of cities all throughout their empire, which had the Roman architecture and the Roman ways and so forth. And so most of the governors and all uh, would uh, gravitate toward there, and, th- and that's, that's where they lived only going to Jerusalem for the feasts and, and other key times, and Caesarea uh, was that place in Israel. We remember in chapter 10 that it was where the Roman centurion Cornelius, his entire household, was saved. It was there in the city of Caesarea. It has a very significant biblical uh, New Testament history. And so uh, it w- they entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist. They lodged with him many days. Uh, we remember that Philip was one of the seven, one of the seven deacons appointed, uh, as is recorded in uh, chapter 6, Acts all intertwines. Later on, God used him, we know, in chapter 8 to bring a revival to uh, the region of Samaria. And then the Lord led him then in chapter 8 to preach to an Ethiopian eunuch who became a Christian as a result and was water baptized by uh, 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 Philip. And then Philip, we were told in that same chapter, made his way up the coast preaching and ultimately settled in Caesarea And uh, here we get the rest of the story uh, 20 years later. He is the father of four unmarried daughters. Each one of them is a prophetess, and it's it's, uh, the Holy Spirit's way of saying that they were very spiritual, very gifted and godly uh, in their own right. I think about when I think about this particular thing, coming back, coming into contact with Philip. Isn't it wonderful when you run into Christians uh, 20 years absence, and here they were maybe formative in your early years as a Christian or significant relationship somewhere along the way, and you run into them out of the blue somewhere along the line, and then to discover that they love the Lord as much as they ever loved Him, they're still walking with Him, they're still... Uh, serving Him, and we immediately realize, as Christians, that that's a blessing for them. It's a blessing to live this Christian life. But what a blessing it is to us! They're still going. They're still continuing. There's still fire in their bones, and so forth. And and what a blessing it is to see saints who. Uh, continue this for long uh, decades. And if that's you as a Christian this morning, you may just think, you know, I'm just dirt under the toenail of the body of Christ. Nobody notices me. Nobody cares. My life isn't making any kind of uh, of a difference. But as you continue simply to walk with Him and to grow in Him and to be used by Him, you have no idea who it is uh, that you are encouraging by virtue of that. God bless you as you do so. We're told in verse 10 that they stayed in Caesarea for many days. So apparently they'd made very good time in terms of uh, trying to get to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and they had the time to uh, kind of hunker down there uh, just a little bit without uh, racing off to Jerusalem. And during that time, a, a prophet by the name of Agabus, verse 11, He travels uh, from uh, Judea to uh, come and be with Paul in Caesarea. It says he probably came from Jerusalem because it says he came down from Judea when you're described as coming away from Jerusalem because it sits up on high elevation. You always went up to Jerusalem and you always came down from Jerusalem. That's how it's described in the Bible. So he probably comes from Jerusalem, one-way a journey of 70 miles. So uh, this is a pretty big commitment on, on his part and he takes Paul's belt from around his waist. Okay, that's kind of odd, uh, but prophets do odd things in the Bible, As if you read the the Old Testament, and they would wear a belt. It would be kind of like a sash. They would wrap it several times around them and uh, around the robe that they would wear. And so he takes this belt from uh, Paul's waist, and he then bound his own hands and his feet with it, And he's going to give Paul and everybody that's witnessing this an object lesson. And this is very common in the Old Testament. We're looking at Jeremiah on Sunday nights where he took a sash and then buried it in uh, the Euphrates River. Came back and got it. He broke a flask. It's all of these Things that are done with a lesson attached to them. And this is precisely what the Holy Spirit is doing through Agabus uh, here. And he prophesied that the Holy Spirit himself was pronouncing that the Apostle Paul would ultimately, in his journey into Jerusalem, uh, be bound by the Jews and then delivered to uh, the Gentiles. Now, this isn't the first time. Again, the interweaving of the book of Acts. This isn't the first time that Paul had encountered Agabus. Agabus had come to the church in Antioch when Paul was really an unknown within the body of Christ at this point in time. He had, uh, Barnabas had gone uh, off to Tarsus to find him because of the great uh, revival that was going on and, and so many people getting saved in the city of Antioch, and they needed teaching. And he went and got Paul and brought him to Antioch. Uh, Agabus came to Antioch in the course of all of that, and he prophesied that a great famine was going to come upon the land because of a drought and so forth, and that they should be prepared uh, for all of that, and that Jerusalem would be especially affected. And all of that uh, occurred as Agabus had prophesied, uh, and, and this is all found in chapter 11. And so he is a prophet who is a proven prophet. I mean, he has a a, a proven track record and everybody knew it. Now, the reaction of the Christians, verse 12, in, in Caesarea and Luke and those that are traveling with Paul, I mean, it's everybody that's there and they hear this prophecy, they begin to plead with Paul that he would not go into Jerusalem in the light of Uh, this prophecy. Paul talks about the fact, he says, why are you weeping? So they're crying, they're weeping, they're begging him not to go to Jerusalem. And his response is there in verse 13. He declared that all of this was breaking his heart, and he asked them to please stop doing this. You're breaking my heart. You're hurting me and then he pronounced that they shouldn't feel sorry for him at all because he was not only willing to go into Jerusalem and to be incarcerated there, but he was willing to uh, die uh, if necessary for the name uh, of the Lord Jesus. Their response to Paul is there in verse 14 uh, and recognizing that all of their pleading is is falling on deaf ears. It, to continue it would be completely fruitless, that Paul, his mind isn't going to be changed, and so they ceased uh, with the words, well, the will of God be done. That's a Christian's way of saying, uncle, uh, we give up and we'll leave it with the Lord. And then uh, after this, Paul and his party then proceeded to Jerusalem, verses 15 and 16. Now, you may or may not be aware that there is a considerable controversy uh, that is contained in this section of Scripture. And it can be uh, summed up like this. Was the Apostle Paul right in going to Jerusalem at this point in his ministry? Uh, After all, as we're told in verse 4, the saints in Tyre had warned him through the Holy Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem uh, but Paul did it anyway. And as a result, all kinds of problems then entered into his life uh, as a result. And it's important for us, I think, for uh, us to give this a little bit of thought here this morning. And I think it's important certainly for any uh, student of the book of Acts. We have to get our bearings on what exactly is happening here with Paul uh, because it's going to determine how we view him and how we interpret the remainder of uh, the book of Acts and uh, the final chapter and season and success of Paul's uh, life. And I think that there's a couple of life lessons to be found here as well. On one side of the controversy, there are those who believe that Paul uh, made a horrible mistake in proceeding to uh, Jerusalem where he was ultimately arrested. You may be one that holds that uh, view, and again, their argument, the foundation for that argument is found in verse four. He had been plainly warned by the Holy Spirit not to go, uh, and he went anyway. And the argument is something like this: that Paul was uh, so blinded in his love for the Jewish people, a love that he described as being so great for them, that he would be willing, as he wrote to that church at Rome, be willing to give up his own salvation if it would mean the salvation of the Jewish people. And Paul seemed to have in his mind, if, did he, if he could get one more chance of preaching the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem, if he could just reason with them from the Scriptures how it is that Jesus was not is their promised Messiah, he could get through to them. After all, he knew exactly how they viewed Jesus. He he knew exactly how their mind worked. He knew what uh, they felt related uh, to him because he had thought the same things of Jesus. He had felt the same way toward Jesus, that he was the voice to finally uh, help the light go on in their lives for uh, coming to faith in Christ Christ. Uh, themselves. I mean, here he is, a former Pharisee, former persecutor of the church, uh, their persecutors of the church, and uh, he had been in their shoes and they knew it, and, and he would be able to get through to them. And the argument goes that governed by uh, the emotion of all of this, uh, Paul kind of deliberately blew through uh, the Holy Spirit's stop signs and he uh, took himself out of the perfect will of God and into the permissive will of God, or worse, by going into Jerusalem now, on the other side of this controversy, there are those that believe that he was it was God, the lord's desire that Paul go to Jerusalem all along, and that the warnings given to him all along the way were not prohibitions uh, to going but as preparation in his life for the hardship that he'd experienced once he got there. And there are many, many, many uh, fine Christians and Bible scholars and Bible students and, and uh, Christians and commentators who hold one view or the other. It isn't an easy passage to uh, conclude what, what is it that Paul did here as it's revealed uh, here, and I don't think anybody can be dogmatic uh, related uh, to that, and we should be gracious to uh, whatever view people hold as, as long as it uh, comes uh, from the Scriptures with the realization that they may very well be correct and, and uh, I or we might uh, be incorrect. I will say, and I'll give you my two cents on it, at this point in my Christian life and in my understanding of the Scriptures, I am personally inclined to believe that Paul uh, did not make a mistake in going up to Jerusalem and uh, that he did not violate God's will for his life in doing so. And let me explain uh, why, since it will affect our understanding of the book the rest of the way. Whenever we come to a passage of Scripture that's confusing, and there are confusing passages in the Bible, or passages that in and of themselves are Uh, unclear in terms of what they are adding to an argument or adding to a particular doctrine uh, within the Bible. And when we run into those kind of verses or passages where uh, nobody seems to be exactly clear on what is uh, being said here in this particular context, the safest thing that we can do to try and discover the meaning is to examine it in the light of its immediate context And then to broaden the context to the whole Bible, uh, to look at this particular subject in the light of what does the rest of the Bible uh, teach on this event or on this uh, doctrine, where uh, in those passages uh, they are very, very clear and very unmistakable uh, on the subject. And the Apostle Paul, he describes this as rightly dividing. The word of truth. And so let's spend a moment or two doing exactly that. So in that vein, first of all, uh, we consider all of Paul's previous revelations that God had given to him uh, concerning going to Jerusalem in which he repeatedly sensed that the Holy Spirit was directing him to do so without any qualification, without any reservation at all. Acts chapter 19, verse 21 is a classic example of this. Um, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, that he had, uh, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After. Uh, saying, "'After I have been there, I must also see Rome.'" In Acts chapter 20, to the Ephesian elders, he said, "'And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that chains and tribulations await me.'" So he goes to city after city after city. The Holy Spirit is prophesying to him through fellow Christians that difficulty awaits him in Jerusalem, and over and over and over again in each of those cities, the Holy Spirit offers no prohibition uh, to going to Jerusalem. Only the warning that tribulation awaits him there, and uh, and we see modeled here in Paul. Uh, the importance of never allowing a single prophecy given by anyone to move us from what we believe to be God's will for our lives. Never move to Peru or to Germany or to anywhere in the world uh, based on a prophecy from another person. When someone prophesies to us as Christians, and we believe in the gift of prophecy for today, but when somebody prophesies, that prophecy either needs to be a confirmation of something that God has already revealed to us, or a prophecy that we then take to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to confirm in an unmistakable way as being His mind uh, for our lives. So Paul has this long history now of being warned. Uh, the direction He's going to go to Jerusalem, people are warning Him the difficulty is going to face Him there, but not that He shouldn't go. And so this prophecy of verse 4 kind of comes against the long history of prophecy that He has coming uh, into uh, His life. It isn't unusual. I don't say that it is a proper uh, way to kind of dismiss verse 4 because I wouldn't do it in that in that way. but. Uh, sometimes we can receive a word from the Lord as Christians. Those of you who operate in some of the spiritual gifts and you realize sometimes the great temptation for God uh, to give a word of wisdom or to give a word of knowledge or a vision or a prophecy and then to try and figure it out for God rather than to simply deliver it. And so this must mean this. So He's given us the prophecy and then we add our two cents onto it of what we think is, you know, will take it all the way home in somebody's life and God didn't uh, want the help. And perhaps Paul uh, viewed this prophecy in that way. Whatever it was, Paul was not convinced that this prophecy of verse 4 nullified the previous prophecies given in his life. Remember also that Paul was an apostle And even though the apostles were fully capable uh, of uh, sinning, but in terms of the miraculous of the Christian life in the early church, in terms of spiritual gifts, supernatural wisdom, signs, wonders, miracles, uh, the apostles were in a league of their own. And the office of an apostle always trumped that in terms of authority uh, of a prophet And so without kind of indisputable evidence of some kind of open rebellion on the part of the Apostle Paul here, I'm not comfortable condemning him in in any way. Second, I think it's important to notice that whatever happened to Paul in Jerusalem, uh, all of the tribulation and difficulty and incarceration, all of it was completely consistent with what God had spoken through Ananias In the city of Damascus, just a few days uh, after uh, he had come into uh, Damascus uh, following his uh, conversion, what God had spoken to Ananias concerning Paul. And the Lord said to Ananias, Acts chapter 9, uh, concerning Paul, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name uh, before the Gentiles, before kings, and the children of Israel For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, up to this point in the book of Acts, Paul has appeared before many, many people, but he has not yet appeared before kings and rulers as God had said that he would. But now this last season in his life, and it is recorded here in the book of Acts, he does end up standing before kings to testify of Jesus. And it was his arrest in Jerusalem that set this, all of this earlier prophetic revelation in motion. So as, as heartbreaking as all of this news of coming difficulty and incarceration that was going to, uh, Paul was going to experience in the city of Jerusalem. As, as hard as that was for his loved ones to hear that concerning uh, him, the fact of the matter is, is it didn't surprise Paul at all. God had revealed this to him in the early days and weeks of his Christian life. Third, I think it's uh, important to recognize that when Agabus prophesied Uh, by the Spirit to, uh, to Paul using his belt that he would be bound in Jerusalem. That message that Agabus gave to Paul was completely consistent with what God had revealed about Jerusalem in city after city after city previously. The chains awaited him there, but there was no sort of prohibition on the part of Agabus being given to uh, Paul. Uh, Through Agabus, the Holy Spirit had this perfect chance to just slam the door with a confirming prophecy uh, like the one in Tyre that he was not to go, uh, but uh, Agabus stopped short of that. Again, I think it's best and safest, at least to me, uh, to judge the intent of uh, verse 4, with all of the other revelations as opposed to uh, the other way around. I also think it's significant that Agabus is the only one who is formally identified as acting in the office of a prophet uh, by the Holy Spirit who speaks into this situation. Now, fourth, uh, I find it difficult to believe that Paul's parting words in verse 13 were spoken by a man who is uh, willingly and knowingly uh, disobeying the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, You notice there that he didn't state that he was willing to die for uh, the Jewish people or that he was willing to die to bring the gospel to the uh, Jewish people or to die for some plan of his own of going to Jerusalem contrary uh, to God's will, but that he was willing to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. He obviously felt himself to be in the will of God in going into the city. Fifth, there's only 40, so just relax. The response there is the response of Paul's traveling party, uh, and the church there uh, at in Caesarea, as is recorded in verse 14, and their response uh, is not consistent with them. Uh, viewing uh, Paul's decision as one where he's uh, walking in disobedience to the Lord and contrary to the will of God. They would never say, well, the will of the Lord be uh, done related uh, to that. And it's a reaction they have as it's recorded in verse 14 that's consistent with viewing Jerusalem not as the site of something forbidden for the Apostle Paul but as a place that's going to be very hard for him and very dangerous. And then sixth, there are the blessings and the affirmations uh, that God spoke into Paul's life subsequent to his arrest there in uh, Jerusalem. Later on, as we'll see in chapter 23, verse 11, but the following night, Luke writes, "Uh, the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, as he's incarcerated there uh, in Jerusalem, and the Lord said, "'Be of good cheer, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome.'" And so nowhere, not even once in the entire biblical record, Is this event uh, in uh, Paul's life ever spoken of with even a hint uh, of wrongdoing on his part? And then seventh later, while he was in uh, custody in Jerusalem and testifying before the Jewish Sanhedrin, he is He is being on trial before these Jewish religious leaders. The Apostle Paul, looking, we're told, spoke to that council again in chapter 23 of Acts. He looked earnestly at the council and said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Not something that he could have said within days of going, uh, knowingly going against God and deliberately ob- disobeying Him and going into Jerusalem. And then there is the, the celebratory statement at the close of his life where Paul declares, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And he declared this to be true of himself without any qualification at all, he declares it without any kind of conviction, you know, or, or the slightest regret. His, his conscience is completely clear. He doesn't say, you know, I've finished the race except for that little flub there uh, in Jerusalem that kind of messed up the last uh, uh, part of, of my life. There's none of that that exists in his heart at all. And then finally, and I don't really have time to develop it, Uh, this morning at all, but it is clear that as the Holy Spirit inspired Luke uh, to write the gospel according to Luke and also to write uh, the book of Acts, that as He writes both of those, and it's worthy of some examination independent of this sermon on, on your own, but that Luke draws very, very strong parallels between Jesus going up To Jerusalem for the final time, and then Paul doing the same. For example, Paul uh, wished to go to Jerusalem for one of the main Jewish feasts, and Jesus traveled to Jerusalem uh, for the last time uh, for the uh, Feast of Passover. Uh, The Spirit warned Paul uh, three times in terms of what he was going to face once he got to Jerusalem. And three times in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus foretold to the disciples and others the suffering that He would face there. Paul was bound by Roman soldiers. Jesus was ultimately bound... Uh, by Roman soldiers. Paul knelt down uh, repeatedly uh, in prayer before all of this happened. Jesus knelt down uh, and prayed repeatedly in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Paul uh, enters into Jerusalem uh, under the kind of the chorus of let the Lord's will be done, and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before His crucifixion uh, cried out to the Lord three times, nevertheless not my will but Thy will uh, be done. And what Luke seems to be bringing out in kind of the parallel uh, between the two here is that Paul's determination to do God's will in Jerusalem, at whatever the personal cost to him, that he wasn't being disobedient, but he was just simply being like Jesus in a similar circumstance. In Luke chapter 9 verse 51, it declares concerning Jesus, and it came to pass when the time was come that uh, he should be received up, speaking of Jesus, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. One translation has it that Jesus set his face like Flint in order to enter in uh, to Jerusalem. And so the idea is that as Luke lays this portrait out, that Paul is not modeling rebellion against God here uh, at all, but rather just simply being like the Lord Jesus in His willingness to obey God at whatever the cost, and then modeling that in his own life. And so Luke is not uh, committing all of this space in the book of Acts to expose Paul's kind of feet of clay here but he is showing us what it was that, uh, that Paul did in, following, in him following the example of Jesus in his life and in his ministry and with the idea that we would then model that uh, in our own lives as well, whatever, uh, when we find ourselves in a similar kind of circumstance. It seems best to me, and I don't put anyone down and you can certainly feel free to disagree with me uh, wholeheartedly. But it does seem best to me to understand verse 4 in the same vein as verses uh, 10 through 12, where here you have Christians who, out of a very, very deep love for Paul, they wanted desperately to protect him from the hardships and the suffering that the Holy Spirit revealed that he would endure and suffer there, in the city of Jerusalem, which Paul then uh, had recognized uh, for what it was, and he recognized these are just people that love me and they want to, want me to, to, to spare me of any suffering that I might face, and, and he recognized it for being that and then he had to reject it in order to then be obedient uh, to God's plan for his life. Now, I close here with just a very brief observation and a very brief devotional application. The observation is that somehow uh, it is encouraging to me, and I trust and very confident that it is an encouragement to you, uh, that discovering the will of God, Uh, In the early church uh, was not an easy thing for them. There wasn't like some red phone in a room somewhere in the house where they could head over to it, pick it up, and get the mind of the Lord immediately on, on a particular issue. Uh, it, was, it was something that at the attempt to discern the will of God through all the various circumstances that they found themselves uh, in, it was something that they, uh, that they struggled with and they uh, worked at it. And so it comforts me when I'm in those similar uh, place in my own life. I don't know what He wants for this circumstance or what fork in the road that I'm to take. But then to also observe that through the maze of all of these conflicting opinions of very, very good people, honest people, that God ultimately caused His will to prevail over all of the confusion that they were facing. This is known as the sovereignty of God, and we can be confident that He will do the same for us as well. And then finally, a a devotional application for our hearts. This passage of Scripture also supplies us with what I think is a very important application that we may not need on a daily basis in our Christian lives. But there will be two, three, four, five times in the course of our Christian lives where we will need to draw upon it. And the fact that it is in our heart to draw upon will prove to be a lifesaver for us in that particular circumstance. I think that this passage, among other things, it teaches that when we are facing a season of suffering uh, in our lives, or a season of, su- uh, of uh, 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 that, it's such times when when these things are, we're either in a season of suffering or one is coming uh, upon us. That in those kind of times. That it's important for us to be very, very discerning concerning the counsel that we receive from the people who love us most all around us. There's a tendency within many of us in that kind of a circumstance to, for those that we love so much in life and they're facing hardship or they're going into hardship, to try and protect them from suffering. And, and, or to try and bring their suffering uh, to the quickest end possible, and to try and bring it to an end uh, at all costs, even if it means the expense of uh, God's plan for their life, or the, the, at the expense of God's commandments to Christians in a, a given uh, situation." And so often that counsel that is born out of an emotional love in people's hearts for us, it can just pour forth. I mean, there is, it's not coupled with prayer at all, no time spent in seeking the Lord at all. All we know is that our loved one is suffering, and what can I do to bring it to an end? And I've seen it over and over and over again through the years as a pastor where the marriage gets hard for an adult child, and the parents, the Christian parents, hating to see their son and daughter suffer in the hardship that so often can be a part of any marriage, and they jump in and they give their child a quick way out of the difficulty. And it doesn't matter to them what God's Word says about separation or divorce or any of that or the character that the child might be developing uh, within uh, the uh, circumstance itself or the relationship, the deepening of relationship that's happening between them and God and so forth. Their counsel is just end it, just get out of it or the child, a a loved one is getting a college education. It starts to get hard. There's so many hours. You don't even know how you can stay awake. And then the complaint goes to those who love them most. And just drop out of it. Drop the class. The teacher's too hard. I mean, anything. Change your major. Anything to stop the the, the difficulty, the tribulation that they're in, or a job gets hard, the hours are long, the boss is really pushing uh, 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 the, the one that, that we love, and the idea is just quit the job. I mean, you're too good for that job anyway, whatever it takes to stop the suffering, and on and on it goes in a lot of different circumstances in life. Then a season of suffering and hardship in our lives, It can be important to be very wise and discerning about the counsel that we receive from those who love us the most in life. We should always be open to godly counsel from anyone because the Bible teaches that there's safety in the multitude of godly counselors. But very often, I think, and in some circumstances, and perhaps this is one of them with Paul, It is best to receive encouragement from those who love us uh, most when we find ourselves in deep trials in the course of our life, but then to look to others who are outside of the situation for a bit of godly perspective and direction, and then, of course, to take all of that counsel or all of the advice to uh, the Lord in prayer for His mind in the situation. And so uh, devotional thought related to uh, an important season that's in Paul's life that sets the stage for the rest of the book. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for another example of the Apostle Paul's uh, determination to finish his race and his course and to do so at whether it means hardship, whether it means imprisonment, whether it means tribulation, or whether it even means uh, death. And Lord, we've seen that repeatedly all the way through the book of Acts here. And then now we see this new wrinkle And all of the things that would try and turn his heart away from fulfilling your plan for his life, and that is the pleading of those who uh, knew him best and loved him best in life and his willingness to even put that on the wayside, Lord, when necessary in order to continue in your plan for his life. And we pray that as we face similar circumstances in our pilgrimage and in our life as we're on our journey and where that very thing is necessary uh, to do as well, that you would give us both discernment and you would give us strength to do it. And we ask these things of you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. If you stand here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and we would love to pray with you to begin the relationship with God that you were made for and that you've been searching for all of your life.